preach the word in season, preach the word out of season, preach the word with great patience and instruction, preach with patience, preach with patience and instruction. The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. And uh, today we have the the great joy of opening God's Word. And uh, we have a guest speaker who is here uh, with us. We have uh, Pastor Kerry Harding. Uh, For those of you who are with us for our marriage retreat, you don't need another introduction. But for those of you who weren't, I'll go ahead and give you the formal introduction to Pastor uh, Pastor Kerry. He's a former pharmacist from Texas. He graduated from the Master's Seminary. 1996 and served from 1993 until 2006 on the pastoral staff of Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. Uh, He was joking with me earlier that he heard that I was uh, uh, coming in 2006, so he decided to hightail it out of town before I arrived. Uh, He served as the senior pastor at uh, Twin City Bible Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, since 2006. Uh, He's an adjunct professor at the Expositor's Seminary, and many of you have heard about the Expositor's Seminary. We've prayed for uh, that seminary from this pulpit. And his sermons are also heard weekly on the radio program, Loving the Truth. Uh, Carries on the board of the Italian Theological Academy, and he also uh, uh, has opportunities to teach uh, classes and speak uh, at conferences in uh, Italy, uh, providing training for Italian church leaders. And he and his wife, Pam, have been married since 1976. Uh, They're blessed with four adult children and two grandchildren. I first had the uh, opportunity uh, to get to know uh, Carrie in a more personal way uh, during our our time at a conference. We uh, did a conference together in Charleston, South uh, Carolina a number of uh, years ago. Got got a chance to know uh, both uh, Carrie and and Pam, uh, his wife. We have a lot of mutual uh, friends, and uh, we were able to to kind of keep in touch over the years. Uh, So grateful uh, for that and having uh, another brother that we can uh, labor together with uh, in ministering. And uh, also, uh, for those of you who are at the conference, you know that his wife Pam has written a book. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, book later, but uh, I'll leave uh, Carrie to do the little plug uh, for his wife's book, but an excellent book on uh, keeping balance uh, in life. And uh, we know that there are many challenges, uh, many responsibilities that we have, uh, but God has actually given us everything that we need uh, in order to fulfill his will for our lives. God hasn't given us more to do than he's given us the opportunity and time and resources uh, to do those things with. So what God commands of us, he also gives us the opportunities uh, to actually fulfill those things in our lives. And uh, sometimes we just need to prioritize things, uh, make sure that we're actually following his will and not just what our will is for our lives, other people's wills for our lives, that we're actually obeying his commands and we can take care of all the things that the Lord has given us to do. Uh, If you need more practical help with that, uh, Pam's written a a wonderful book about that subject and uh, she's uh, spoken on that topic a number of times and has uh, also uh, written that book. So uh, very grateful uh, for that resource that a number of our ladies will be enjoying. So, uh, Pastor Kerry, uh, why don't you come up and minister the Word of God to us? Well, what a blessing uh, to be here uh, today. I uh, had such a great time at the retreat, and uh, some of my friends, others I know, have asked me, you know, how did it go? I went, it was good. The teaching was a little weak, but uh, other than that, it was good. Uh, Uh, No one threw tomatoes at me, so that's how I judge things, you know, uh, whether they went well or not. So we'll see if that happens again today. But it is a great, great privilege for me uh, to be here. I was a pharmacist uh, for many, many years, and then the Lord, uh, after a few years of marriage, uh, brought me to himself and saved me, and it was a great career. My desires began to change, though, over time, and and eventually found myself in ministry for several years, and, and after several years of that, realized I needed training. And so then I went to seminary and continued to be involved in pharmacy a little bit, but preparing for full-time ministry and have been serving the Lord now for a number of years that way. Uh, as a friend once told me, uh, they said, well, it sounds like you went from dispensing pills to dispensing the gospel. And... <laughs> I thought, you know, that's the cheesiest thing I've ever heard, and I'm never going to repeat it, ever. So I'm not going to say it today. Uh, 
It's interesting uh, how there are some biblical statements or events that have come to be used commonly, even in our culture, by unbelievers as metaphors for uh, life in our own world today. Uh, There are those examples that people say, they may not even know where they come from, but something like this, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. I've heard people use that to talk about uh, some difficult situation they're facing or they're feeling like there's just no way out of something or somebody, they're being attacked. I feel like I'm Daniel in the lion's den. I've heard people say something about uh, someone or something being their, their thorn in the flesh, not realizing that comes from 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about himself and something he was dealing with. There's another phrase like that that's related to Israel's escape from Egypt. It's a story we're familiar with, you know, when the Egyptians were pursuing them from behind and the Red Sea was uh, before them, it looked like it was impossible. Uh, And so this expression has come from that, that sometimes we feel like we're, we're standing at the Red Sea. I've heard unbelievers say that. Or now, I mean, what we really need now is the parting of the Red Sea to happen. Well, it was a real event. We understand what was happening there with Israel. But I will tell you about another time in Israel's history. Long after they had actually stood at the Red Sea like that. And here was another situation which did seem to be impossible for them. There was another time later in the nation's history when all the people living in Judah, the southern kingdom, you know, Israel was divided between the southern and the northern kingdom at some point. The people living under the, in the southern kingdom, under their king Jehoshaphat, a time when they were facing what seemed to them, I'm sure it likely made them feel that they were once again standing at the Red Sea with no solution. We find the account of this and where we'll be spending our time today in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 having trouble finding that, it's right after 2 Chronicles 19, right in there, okay? So just a little help there. 2 Chronicles 20, this is the account of the time when Judah, the southern kingdom, faced invasion by the hostile nations that lived around them. Now, before we look at that event, just a few comments about their king, Jehoshaphat. He was the son of another king, King Asa. And you know how that was in Israel's history. Whenever they would, the Bible would refer to him, someone as being a good king, it was really relative. Asa was a relatively good king. Even the good kings, though, had some glaring blind spots in their thinking and their behavior. But overall, Asa was a decent king. You can find a statement about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 2. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord of his God many times, not all the time. But when he died, he was succeeded by his son, Jehoshaphat. That's chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles. And once again, Jehoshaphat was one of those who was a relatively good king. Listen to this, chapter 17, verses 3, 4, and 5. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he, verse 4, sought the God of his father, followed the Lord's commandments, and did not act as Israel did, verse 5, so the Lord established the kingdom in his control. Again, relatively good king. Chapter 18, however, we do unfortunately find Jehoshaphat aligning himself. He made a bad decision. He aligned himself with Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, Ahab was someone who really didn't love the Lord, so Jehoshaphat shouldn't have, shouldn't have aligned himself with him, because that eventually led to Ahab's request that Jehoshaphat would help him, Ahab, go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Now, to Jehoshaphat's credit, he had some hesitation about that. <laughs> I, I really think we ought to seek the Lord's will in this, he, he said, through a prophet, Ahab didn't really want to do that at first. He reluctantly agreed eventually and said, okay, go ask this prophet named Micaiah. This is chapter 18, verse 7. It's interesting what Ahab said to Jehoshaphat about that. Chapter 18, verse 7, the king of Israel, that's Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, okay, 
There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. But if you need to, go talk to him. Well, Jehoshaphat did insist that, to do that, and so they consulted Micaiah. And Micaiah eventually says to them, this is crazy. This, this venture you're about to go on is going to fail. Well, Ahab didn't care, and he insisted on this campaign anyway, and he deceived Jehoshaphat into going into battle with him. A point came, though, where Jehoshaphat realized we've made a horrible mistake. He cried out to God for help, and God graciously gave him some help. You know what happened to Ahab, though? It was really interesting. One of the enemy soldiers just randomly shot an arrow in the, in the air, and it came down into a joint in Ahab's armor and killed him, led to his death. Well, chapter 19, a man named Jehu confronted Jehoshaphat about having done that, aligned yourself with Ahab, that was wrong. Well, though this debacle in Jehoshaphat's reign was unfortunate, Jehoshaphat really deep down was a godly man, and he knew it was wrong, and he learned from it. And he repented. He responded properly. It's chapter 19, verse 4. So Jehoshaphat, it goes on to say, went out again among the people. And then it says, and he brought them, brought them back to the Lord. He knew what was right. And that sets the stage for our focus today, chapter 20. Now, this is a, a narrative, and it, it, it's a story. So I'm just going to tell the story, walk through it. But we're going we're to divide it up into six scenes like the scenes of a play being acted out, acted out on a stage. I'll just read it as we go through it. But here's scene number one, something that happened. It was about six or seven years before Jehoshaphat's death. Scene number one, the unexpected threat. The unexpected threat. Verse 1, chapter 20. Now, it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the uh, Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. These three nations combined their forces and unexpectedly sought to invade the southern kingdom. The Moabites and the Ammonites were northern neighbors. This is going to be on the exam, by the way, so you better write all this down. They were the northern neighbors. The Meunites, they were uh, an Arabic tribe. They were headquartered on the southwest side. So you got two from the north, one on the southwest. They combined. This coalition of armies planned to invade Judah with the purpose of driving the people of God out of the land. They wanted the land. They wanted to take over. Now, it was some of Jehoshaphat's people who brought him the shocking news of what was about to happen. Verse 2. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram. Note how the invading force is termed there. It's a great multitude. That, that indicates that it's, it's a vast army, and the point is it's much larger than Jehoshaphat's army, Judah's army. This advancing army actually was using a, a little-used route. They, they ran around, went around the south end of the Dead Sea where it was a route hardly anybody used, and Judah was less defended down there. There they were about to invade. What was motivating that? Well, they had heard about how well the land of Judah was doing. They heard about the riches in the temple at Jerusalem. They, they knew how the people of Judea had been for years flourishing. So now they were, they were coming in great hordes to kill and destroy and to plunder. What a scene. Scene number one, the unexpected threat. Scene number two, the singular hope. Verse three, Jehoshaphat was afraid. We understand that, right? <laughs> I mean, he knew they were outnumbered. But he also knew where to go for help. And we've been singing about that today. Verse 3. And he turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now that term seek, it's a, a word that means a, a settled seriousness. It wasn't just lightly seeking something. It was a serious seeking. It's this idea of fixing your heart on something. 
So the point is that ultimately Jehoshaphat was putting his trust in the Lord in this situation. He also called upon the people to fast. That was a way for them to to humble themselves before God. It was a way to express that, that, that there was nothing they could do. They sincerely needed his help. And that's what all the people did. They pled to God for help, verse 4. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. I mean, they all knew this was serious. They all knew that the enemy was enormous and that the case was hopeless as far as they were concerned. So they prayed, and their king Jehoshaphat, he was leading them and gathered them in the temple. I want us to look at this prayer, though. You can divide this prayer into four sections here. Look what they did first. The first thing to do is they acknowledged God's sovereign power. Verse 6. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not the God in heavens? And are you not the, the ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. I mean, they're confessing that God is truly omnipotent. He has all power. They're confessing that he rules over all things. He exercises sovereign power, it says, in, in power and might. They were essentially expressing their confidence that God did have the ability, even though they did not. The name of the Lord here is Yahweh. That's what Jehoshaphat says, Yahweh. And he calls Yahweh the God of our fathers. In other words, he's giving a reason why God should protect his people in this distressing situation. It's because God had already proven his power and his might in generations past in their history. They knew that. The God of their fathers in the past and all the wonderful things that he had done. And so he was the same God to them that day. Just as he is the same God in our day. So they acknowledge God's sovereign power. Second, they acknowledge their past blessings from the Lord. That's part of the prayer, which in their case meant the gift of land to the nation and the temple, just as God had promised to Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon. Look at verse 7. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it, and they've built you a sanctuary there for your name. Here's the point. Since Yahweh had given the land of Canaan, the promised land, to his people, Israel, for an everlasting possession, and since Israel had built a sanctuary to the Lord's name, it only seemed right that God would take care of the nation so that they could continue to worship him, so that they continue, could continue to enjoy it. In other words, Jehoshaphat trusted that God would not forsake his people. He had been there for them in the past, gotten them to this point, and they were confident he would not forsake them. Look at verse 9, something else they did in their prayer. Third, they acknowledged what God had already promised to them. In this case, and you'd have to compare it, really, to 2 Chronicles 6 and 7, but they're actually reciting a summary of the promises that were associated with the Davidic covenant given to the nation earlier. That covenant included God's promise to hear the prayers offered up to him in the temple. So verse 9, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you for your name's is in this house and cry to you in our distress and you will hear and deliver us. Notice it says, should evil come upon us. If you look back at chapter 6, that's basically what Solomon prayed when the temple was dedicated. They're drawing upon that, something that already happened in the past, using some of that same language, reminding God in a sense. In chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, God promised them that he would answer that kind of prayer from his people. I just boil it down. I'll tell you what Jehoshaphat is essentially pleading. It's this. He's pleading with God saying, God, I'm asking you to do 
what you promised you would do. That's what I'm asking. Just the fourth thing about this prayer real quick. They acknowledge their terrible circumstances. Verse 10, 11. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them, you know, our people, and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us now by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. In other words, Jehoshaphat believed what the nations were doing there was wrong because God had showed them grace already. When the people, the nation of Israel was invading all this land, he left those nations alone out of his grace. He protected them. When Israel began taking over the promised land. And yet, in spite of God showing them grace, here they were invading God's people, the Israelites. That can only mean one thing to Jehoshaphat. If God was going to be gracious to them, and they're going to do something like that, God's going to even be more gracious to us, his people. There is one more thing, actually, about this prayer. Fifth, they acknowledge their need for help. And this is a central verse in the passage. So get this, verse 12. Oh God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who's coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. Our eyes are on you. What a great expression of weakness What a great expression of their total inability to change the circumstances they were in. They knew they had one hope, a singular hope. They knew that God was the only one who could accomplish anything in a situation like this. They didn't know how help would come. They didn't know when. They don't know anything at this point. If you've read the story, you know what happens, but they didn't know it. They just knew to look to God anyway. There's no place else we can look. Verse 13 says, All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. I'm sure having the children there just increased the sense of the danger they were in. They brought them all out. It's all of us. Our families, our children, there's no hope for us except for you, Lord. And I'm sure seeing all the children there in their arms and the babies and the toddlers and everybody else, that just stirred them to even more fervent prayer for God was their singular source of hope. Scene number three, the encouraging promise, the encouraging promise. Now, starting in verse 14, we find that the Lord sent an answer to Jehoshaphat Jehoshaphat, from an unexpected source. It was through a Levite named Jehaziel. Jehaziel was a descendant of the chief Levitical musician Asaph. Asaph has written some of our Psalms, like Psalm 73. He was a gifted musician, a gifted person with knowledge of truth, Asaph. Jehaziel is a descendant of Asaph. And God used this man to come give Jehoshaphat an answer. Verse 14. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. Verse 15. Here's what he says. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Now that that had to be good news. At least was a very welcome reminder of the Lord's care. It was a reminder to him of the God's sovereign ability to work out his will. Listen, this is a reminder of what is true in every circumstance. Whatever we're in today, whatever you're in today, the answer is still trusting the Lord's will. Trusting that he is working out his sovereign will in the providential dealings in this world. The specific way God is going to work is not something we can know ahead of time. And that was true for these Israelites. They're not told, even by 
Jehaziel here. They're not told specifically what God's going to do. Only that God's doing something. And what God would do would become evident the next day. Verse 16. Tomorrow, go down against them, and you will find them, the enemy, at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. Now, just so you'll know, geographically, this wilderness that it's talking about here was a very high, like a high desert, a high tableland along the west side of the Dead Sea. It was essentially a wasteland. So Israel went to meet the enemy there on this high table land, but it was not to fight. Look at verse 17. This is what they're told. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. And notice the repetition of these instructions. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. That is such an important point. The first help God brought to them was a calming of their hearts. He calmed their fears so that they were able, without fear, then to go face whatever was going to come. They still don't know what that is. But God brought a calming to their hearts. How often God has done that for us. That the deliverance ends up being defined that way. He quiets us. He quiets our hearts. Have you ever been in a situation? Probably not. This church probably is full of people that have never had problems of any kind. Okay, so this probably means nothing. But hypothetically... Have you ever been in a situation where it was obvious to you there was just nothing more you could do? Isn't it amazing? It's in those very situations that we don't have to fear, Scripture tells us. We can have calm hearts even then, just like they did that day. Scene number four, the proper response. You know what the proper response is? You'll see it in verses 18 to 20. They worshiped. 18, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. 19, it goes on to say, they stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Verse 20, they rose early in the morning. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Listen, this is where the real spiritual battles are fought, right here. The spiritual battles that we fight are related to this in whether or not we are going to genuinely trust God when we're facing difficult times. And once again, notice this. It's so significant. This was their response, worshiping God before actually seeing what God was going to do. They still don't know that. Keep that in mind. Scene number five. This play is moving quite fast here. Scene number five. I call it the shocking discovery. Verse 22. When they began singing and praising, the Lord said, now they don't know this. I mean, they're singing and praising and giving God the glory he deserves. Their hearts have been calmed. While that's going on, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed, the New American Standard says. That's a great word. I never, I never use that word, but routed, it's a good word. 23. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. I mean, get the picture here. Here the Israelites are marching out to battle, supposedly to battle. That's what the enemy thinks. But they're marching out singing and praising. 
Now, I would imagine the enemies are thinking, we, we've never seen a battle like this before. I mean, they would have been unable to comprehend this defense tactic. Because, you know, they're expecting a fight. I'm sure they couldn't figure it out. I mean, they're, they're accustomed to seeing the armies rushing into battle a totally different way. Not, not marching along singing hymns. What, what a unique style of fighting. And evidently, this is all we can say about it. Evidently, that greatly confused them. We don't know exactly, but the confusion somehow led to some sort of mistrust as they began to look at one another. Something's going on here. They're about to trick us, and you guys are the ones who have called it. No, it's them over there. They're in cahoots with them. Something's going on. They start mistrusting one another, and that manifested itself, and the invading armies start to destroy one another. Now, we know the bottom line is God stirred up all that confusion in them. Here's what God's people had to do. Stand there and look at it. Verse 24, when Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. I mean, what a shocking discovery here. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them. I mean, all the stuff, including goods, garments, and valuable things, iPads, computers, I mean, phones. Car keys, I don't know. And they took them for themselves, more than they could carry. And they were, it took three days to gather up all the spoil because there was so much. So Jehoshaphat with his people, they found them all dead along with all this wealth. Why would the wealth have been there? Remember why they're attacking? They didn't come there just to make a point and then go back home. They came there to stay. They brought everything with them. We're going to run out Israel. This is our land now. They brought all their property. Scene number six, last scene. The appropriate conclusion. Verse 26. Then on the fourth day, They assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, they have named that place the valley of Baraka until today. It's a valley near the battlefield. They gave it the name of the valley of Baraka because it means, that means blessing. It's the valley of blessing. Then after that, they joyfully went back home to Israel. And they went up to the temple to render further thanks to the Lord for all of his help. Verse 27, every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. Now, just pause there. Many Bible scholars believe that the song that they were singing as they marched was Psalm 47. And it does make sense. Let me just read a few verses from Psalm 47. Verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. Then verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Verse 8. God reigns over the nations. And then word definitely spread what had happened. Verse 29 and 30. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for as God gave him rest on all sides. That is sermon number one. Here's the second one. Okay. I had two... I have two sermons today. I just want to conclude with several reminders. I've got about 72 of them here. (laughs) Not really. I have eight. See, I did that. I did that on purpose because then when I say eight, 
you're like, whew. <laughs> if, I'd had, if I'd said six or seven, eight, you're going to be going, oh my goodness, what time are we going to get out of here? I think that these are the minimum reminders we should get from this story with these scenes that we just walked through. Here's the first one. The reminder of the priority of prayer. Let's start with that one. In all of our difficulties, all of our trials, our dangers, our fears, our burdens, our anxieties, our needs, our perplexities, whether they're public or whether you're sitting there and you're dealing with those privately. Our first response as God's people should be to seek help from him in prayer. How often do we make it our last response? When all else fails, I guess it's come to this. We pray. Just remind you of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for only the big things. No, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's an incredible promise. And the peace of God, there's that quietness of heart. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that in those two verses, there's no mention of the answer to the prayer. The peace is not coming because God's doing what you asked. The peace is coming because you asked. You've given that burden to someone who can bear it. But yet, sadly, for many of us, many times, prayer is the last resort or no resort at all. Just remember Jehoshaphat, remember this scene. Jehoshaphat and his people were helpless. So again, have you ever been in a situation like that where you just... There's no, nothing you can do. You, you can't change the circumstance. You can't change someone's heart. You could be in one right now where you don't know what to do. And you're sensing that you're powerless to change anything. Then at least take this reminder home today. Then pray. In every situation, we should be known as those who are constantly seeking the Lord in prayer. Reminder number two, it's the reminder of the encouragement we find in remembering, remembering. Jehoshaphat did that. He started articulating the things God had done in the past. Remember that there's encouragement in remembering. Jehoshaphat mentioned God's past acts This is a powerful encouragement, remembering what God has done for us in the past. In the past, we have found him many times to be so good, so faithful, so true, so patient, so gracious. So in a time of difficulty, you find yourself in once again, which that's the Christian life. You've either just come through a trial or you're in a trial or you're about to be in a trial. There's our lives. So in that time of difficulty, it's right to come to him and say something like this. God, you are my God. I know that. You're the one that that performed the greatest miracle of all. You brought me up out of the miry clay of my sin. You brought me up out of the Egypt of my sin, if you will. So I know you're not going to leave me now. I know I'm unworthy, Lord, but all those past times you helped me, I was unworthy then too. I was unworthy in all those times. You've always had good reason to abandon me, and you never have. So I come to you again, Lord. You're the only true source of the help that I need. That's what Jehoshaphat did. He asked God's help by first recalling the past, so imitate him. It's okay. Reminder number three. It's the reminder of the freedom we have to be honest with God. The people of Judah there, they clearly articulated their terrible situation and condition. Reminds me of Psalm 3. That's one of my favorite psalms. 
I have 150 favorite psalms, and this is one of them, Psalm 3. And, and David starts off that psalm by basically saying, I'm in a horrible situation. The enemy's around me. My son's trying to kill me. I mean, there's a parenting problem. He's taken over the kingdom, and he's turned the whole nation against me, and now he's, he's bringing all those soldiers that I personally trained. I know they're very good marksmen. They're all out there. I'm completely surrounded. He says in Psalm 3, what's worse, people are saying to me, there's no help for you from God. They were throwing the Bathsheba incident up in his face. It's okay to be honest. And I know we have to be wise with people, but I mean, most of the time people ask us, how you doing? Fine. I mean, we got to be wise, obviously, but at the very least with God, <laughs> don't put on airs. There's great power in being truthful with God about our circumstances and our condition. It's not like he doesn't know. Be truthful with him how you're feeling. Be truthful with him about your fears and your anxieties. Tell him where you really are. Listen to Spurgeon. Got to have a quote from Spurgeon in every sermon. I think I have two, actually. Spurgeon said, When we have no strength, neither know what to do, we come and just lay the case down at God's feet and we say, There it is, our eyes upon you. Perhaps you think, Spurgeon says, perhaps you think that's not praying. I will tell you it is the most powerful form of prayer, just to set your case before God, just to lay bare all your sorrow, all your needs, and then say, Lord, there it is. So he says, so go and lay your bare sorrow before God. Just go to him and show your soul. Tell God what it is that burdens and distresses you. God's not moved by eloquence of words but is swift to answer the true eloquence of real distress. God loves us to honestly state the difficulty we're in. And I think practically speaking, it's because when we do, we end up more prone to watch then what he chooses to do or not do. Our antennas are up. And because no matter how he works in our situation we will more readily then remember our former condition. And therefore, we more readily recognize that he has somehow, somehow brought us through it. So remember the freedom we have in being honest with God. Reminder number four. It's the reminder of the benefit in reciting God's promises. The reminder of the benefit in reciting God's promises. It's not only allowed, it's helpful to say something like this, Lord, you've promised this or that, and I believe you will do as you've said. Now, of course, we're not getting new promises from God. His revelation is complete. It's done. He's already given us all we need in Christ the living word and in the written word, the scriptures. So learn the promises that are in God's word that are timeless. Like Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes things, all things, to work for good. To those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 tells us what the good is. We don't have to guess. Verse 29 tells us the good is that he's conforming us to the image of his son. It's Christ's likeness. That's the good. That's a promise, so pray that. Repeat them to the Lord. Lord, in this situation, you've promised to use it, even if it means overturning evil and sin, you've promised to do that, to use it for good to those who love you. I love you, Lord. You've, you've promised to use this to make me more like Christ. I pray that you would do that, Lord. He promised it. And when you know the promises of God, like 1 Peter 5, that, that comes to mind as well. 1 Peter 5, he, he mentions this, this idea of suffering, of course, throughout 1 Peter, but 
He says in verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And it says in verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, and we read that and we go, God, can I define a little while, you know? I mean, are you talking an hour here? Is that what you got in mind here for me? No, he gets to define a little while. After you've suffered a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Pray that. Lord, you've promised that in spite of this terrible situation I'm in, in spite of my own failure, you have promised that you will confirm and perfect and strengthen and establish me. I pray that you would do that in my life. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what a great promise. He won't allow anything to overtake us except what's common to man in some form of it. Some others have suffered the same way. And it won't be too much to bear, he says. But with the trial, with the testing, he'll provide a way of escape. Our problem is, of course, we put a period there. I like that, a way of escape. It's just that there's not a period, there's more of a comma. Provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's a promise. Lord, you've promised not to test me more than I'm able. It feels that way. I'm being honest with you, Lord. It feels like it's more than I can stand. But your word says it's not, or you wouldn't have let it come. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do this. You would help me to endure it. We tend to pray things like, and we can pray anything, of course, but we we tend to to default to the visible things that we want and the changing of the circumstances and so forth. Know the promises of God. And even Christ says that in John 15, that if if his words abide in you, you, you'll ask and he'll answer it, he'll give it, because his words are abiding you what he desires to do. So it's a reminder of the benefit of reciting God's promises. Here's the next one, a reminder of the true help that we need. This is a reminder of the true help that we need. What we need in most times of difficulty, whether we admit it or not or know it or not, what we need is to be saved not so much from the trouble. We need to be saved from the fear of the trouble. We need to have our hearts quieted and calmed. We need to be rid of the anxiety or the fear. Even if circumstances don't change. As one writer said, the trial itself is nothing if the sting to our soul is removed. It makes the trial different. To say it differently, if your heart is not troubled, then the rest of the trouble is not as bad. Another reminder of our obligation to worship, obligation to worship, In our prayer about the trial or burden, we're also to remember to give the Lord the worship and adoration he deserves, even as we're pouring out our heart to him. It's the worship that also helps strengthen us. And the timing of this is significant. Don't wait on the worship until you see whether God's going to do what you want or not. No, before the answer to the prayer comes, whatever it is, praise him. That's what the Israelites of old did that day. Praise him for what's coming. Adore him for whatever he's going to do, regardless of what it is. That kind of worship and praise is especially sweet to the Lord. Spurgeon once again says, Though still the fig tree does not blossom, and still the cattle die in the stall, and still the sheep perish from the folds, though there should be to you no income to meet your want, and you should be brought almost to necessity's door, still bless the Lord, whose mighty providence cannot fail and shall not fail. Your song, while you are still in distress, will be sweet music to the ear of God. Reminder number seven, it's a reminder of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over how he answers our prayers. And of course, we need to keep something in mind here. His answers, his sovereign answers include yes, no, not now, different than what you ask, Even better than what you ask. It could be any of those. But that's God's sovereign will, what he does. 
We're not twisting his arm in prayer. Plus, let me just add, when you talk about the sovereignty of God, even the timing is in God's hands. His timing is always wise and good and perfect, which means we need to trust him. And lastly, it's a reminder of the need to know Christ. I mean, the bottom line is, today, if you've never trusted Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, just to be blunt, none of this applies to you. None of it. Instead, you're still going to have the trials and difficulties and battles, but instead, you're going to have to fight your own battles. You're going to have to bear your own trials. You're going to have to carry all your own burdens. And just frankly, I can't think of anything worse than that in this earthly world. And if that's not bad enough, when you come to the last great day before the judgment seat of God, you're going to have to answer for your own sins. And you're going to have to bear your own punishment for them for eternity. So our prayer for you is that God would have mercy on you and deliver you from a condition like that. It's a terrible condition to live in. It's an even worse condition to die in. May God open your heart to receive Christ as your Lord, your Savior, so that you can know the confidence that he's working in your life and taking care of you according to his sovereign will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these reminders. We need them all. We need them all daily. So thank you for this incredible example of what it means to give our burdens to you and to put our eyes on you because there is nowhere else we can look. So Lord, we come today confessing. We, we forget these things. We, we try to operate in our own strength. We try to figure things out our own. We try to manipulate circumstances and people to accomplish our own wills. But Lord, thank you for bringing us to that place of humility again as your people to say, we just want you and what your will is. Just as Christ prayed in the garden, we pray. We give our burdens to you, but we pray, nevertheless, your will be done. And to you be the glory. And we certainly pray for anyone here who needs to know the forgiveness of their sin that's in trusting Christ alone. May you open their hearts to believe. In his name we pray. Amen. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.